Hello and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 30, Apollo 1, Fire in the Cockpit. We're in a risky business, and we hope if anything happens to us, it will not delay the program. The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. Our God-given curiosity will force us to go there ourselves, because in the final analysis, only man can fully evaluate the moon in terms understandable to other men. Virgil Gus Grissom On January 27, 1967, the crew of Apollo 1 were in their spacecraft. A Block 1 variant of the Apollo Command Module, it was to be launched on an exploratory shakedown mission of open-ended duration in low Earth orbit in less than three weeks. In the left couch was 40-year-old command pilot and Mercury and Gemini veteran astronaut Gus Grissom. Next to him in the center couch was 36-year-old senior pilot and first American spacewalker Ed White. And seated in the rightmost couch was 31-year-old pilot and astronaut rookie Roger Chaffee. The crew was preparing to fly the first human mission of the long-awaited Apollo program. The mission was officially known as AS-204, a name that decoded to a specific meaning, much like the earlier Mercury flights. For example, MR-3 was the third flight of the Mercury capsule on the Redstone rocket, and MA-7 was the seventh flight of the Mercury capsule on the Atlas rocket. AS-204 translated to a flight of the Apollo spacecraft, the A, the Saturn rocket family, the S, the Saturn 1B variant of the Saturn, the 2, and Flight 4, the 04. So it was the fourth flight of the Apollo spacecraft on the Saturn 1B rocket. But just like how Mercury missions are more known for their unofficial names than their official ones, for example, Friendship 7 versus MA6, this flight was known as Apollo 1. With less than three years remaining to rise to President Kennedy's challenge, tension was starting to mount at the Young Space Agency. While there had been some successful test flights of various pieces of hardware, and the overall vision seemed to be coming together, the program was plagued by a series of delays, failures, and problems. Nothing on its own was enough to jeopardize the lunar landing program, but when added together, it created a feeling that NASA was starting to fall behind. A successful flight of Apollo 1 would put many of those concerns to bed, rally the forces, and truly set the stage for the engineering feats to come. The mission was to spend up to two weeks in orbit getting to know the Apollo Block 1 command module. Officially, the mission was open-ended, but astronauts being astronauts, it was unlikely that they would return until absolutely necessary. The Block 1 variant of the CSM was more or less a leftover from the early days of the Apollo program before the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous mode had been chosen. It had no docking capability and had early versions of much of the final hardware. This particular type of spacecraft would not fly to the moon, but the mission would provide a number of insights. First, not all of the hardware was finalized, but some of it was, or was at least close. By flying for two weeks with an actual human crew on board, engineers would learn far more than any ground test could tell them about how the hardware would perform. It would also provide invaluable feedback about how the crew interacted with the equipment in its native habitat. NASA was no stranger to multi-crew missions thanks to the successful Gemini program, which had concluded mere weeks before, 
but Apollo was the first NASA spacecraft to accommodate a crew of three. It may not seem as consequential as lunar landing radar and stuff like that, but learning the best way for a three-man crew to work together in space could be the difference between success and failure down the line. Should everyone sleep at the same time or take shifts? What roles could each person take on and not be overwhelmed? How hard was it to get their spacesuits on when three people were crammed into the same small space? Stuff like this is easy to overlook, but sanding the rough edges off of mission operations can be super important. Plus, at the end of the mission, they would have three Apollo veterans who would know the spacecraft and operations inside and out. And come lunar landing time, you could never have enough of those. I think something else to consider is overall agency morale. There was no plan for a long hiatus between Gemini and Apollo. In fact, less than 100 days would have passed between the Gemini 12 landing and the scheduled liftoff of Apollo 1. But Gemini wasn't Apollo. Getting Apollo into orbit and getting astronaut feedback from a real mission would energize the vast industrial base that made these missions happen. There were obviously tons of technical goals with this first manned flight, but I think these intangible goals were likely more important than many people realized. But maybe that's just me. On January 27th, the launch still seemed a long way off. Once hoped for a liftoff in late 1966, Apollo 1 had slipped and slipped again, with the rescheduled launch targeting February 21st, just a few short weeks away. The goal for the day was to accomplish the Plugs Out test, one of a series of routine tests in the lead-up to the launch itself. The day before, the Apollo 1 backup crew had performed the Plugs In test, where the capsule is brought through all of the steps leading up to the launch, but without the launch itself. With the plugs in test, the spacecraft remained connected to the groundside equipment, with various umbilicals and electrical connections, and the hatch remained open. The plugs out test was the same pre-launch dress rehearsal, but with all of the ground umbilicals disconnected and the hatch sealed as it would be before the launch. The spacecraft would be on its own. The test was seen as routine and non-hazardous. After all, the spacecraft wasn't being fueled up and the crew wasn't going anywhere. But that said, there was still a certain sense of foreboding about the mission in general. The years leading up to this first Apollo flight were peppered with component failures and examples of shoddy worksmanship on the part of North American aviation. Some of these could perhaps be explained away, since they took place on test hardware or less critical uncrewed flights. But the streak of quality control issues could not be denied. Examples included leaks of the water glycol mixture used to cool electronics, jam-packed wiring bays, numerous short circuits, and endless issues with the simulators used for training, including differences from flight hardware. Grissom was so frustrated that at one point, before departing Houston for the Cape, he grabbed a lemon from a tree in his yard and hung it on the Apollo simulator. Wally Sharab, the backup commander, even warned Grissom to stay on guard since he didn't have a good feeling about the vehicle. Issues aside, progress toward the mission carried on. At 1 p.m., the crew, after donning their full spacesuits, strode across the gantry leading to Apollo Spacecraft 12. Once inside, an intricate series of hatches was sealed behind them. The Block 1 design actually had two hatches, plus a removable panel in the exterior protective cover of the vehicle. Notably, the interior hatch opened inwards, not outwards, 
This was desired, since it meant that the air inside the spacecraft would firmly wedge the door in place and make it impossible for an accidental opening in space. It was also surprisingly complicated to open and close, requiring a special tool to unscrew several bolts. This too was desired. North American had originally proposed an outward opening hatch with explosive bolts to be used in an emergency. But NASA, with Grissom's nearly disastrous experience on Liberty Bell 7 in mind, insisted on a design free of explosive bolts. If they were to fire during ascent or in space, the results would be catastrophic. Hatch closed, the plugs out test could now begin. As the crew began to work through their lengthy checklist, the atmosphere inside the spacecraft transitioned from the roughly 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen mix found in air to a 100% pure oxygen environment. This too had been insisted upon by NASA during the Apollo design process over the protests of North American aviation. The dangers of pure oxygen were well known, but NASA had ample operational experience with pure oxygen capsule environments thanks to the 16 Mercury and Gemini flights. Interestingly, the X-15 cabin actually went in the other direction and was flooded with 100% nitrogen, with the pilot relying on his suit for oxygen. Why accept the risk of a pure oxygen environment? Because the alternative was arguably more risky. Maintaining an 80-20 nitrogen-oxygen mix was a tricky business, and one misstep could incapacitate the crew before they even had a chance to troubleshoot it. If you've ever tried to hold your breath as long as possible, you're familiar with the feeling of your lungs screaming out for oxygen. But what's actually happening is your body is screaming out that you have too much carbon dioxide in your system. If the environmental control system went haywire and flooded the capsule with pure nitrogen, the crew's lungs would remain silent, and they would simply get sleepy and fuzzy-headed before drifting off into unconsciousness due to a lack of oxygen. It's pretty scary stuff. Another benefit of a pure oxygen environment was that the pressure inside the spacecraft could be lowered. Instead of 14 pounds per square inch of nitrogen and oxygen, as is the norm at sea level, Apollo could use about 5 psi of pure oxygen but that would not be the case today. While 5 PSI was to be used in orbit, for the duration of the plugs-out test, the spacecraft interior was actually pressurized to 16 PSI. This was because it was a spacecraft and was used to containing more pressure than the outside world. Having 5 PSI inside and 14 PSI sea level pressure outside would result in the atmosphere pressing in on Apollo instead of Apollo pressing out. The solution was to simply crank up the oxygen until it was slightly overpressured. It was also a handy way to check for leaks. If the pressure dropped, the air was getting out somehow. The plugs-out test was not going well. Right after entering the spacecraft, the crew reported a foul odor, similar to sour milk. The mysterious odor eventually went away on its own, and played no part in the events to come, but it was not an auspicious start to the test. As the hours ticked by, numerous small problems were noted. Perhaps most irritating was persistent difficulty with the communication system. Voice channels between the crew and the folks on the ground was staticky and prone to dropping out. Additionally, there seemed to be a hot microphone somewhere in the cabin, causing noise and confusion on the line. 
Anyone who's ever been on a conference call where someone forgot to mute their noisy line can appreciate how frustrating that can be. Grissom Riley commented, How are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between three buildings? At 6.31 p.m., a brief electrical spike on one of the spacecraft electrical buses was noted on the telemetry. About 10 seconds later, a crew member called out, Hey! Shortly followed by Ed White reporting, We've got a fire in the cockpit. Before anyone had time to react, the pressure in the spacecraft rose from 16 PSI to 29, and then suddenly dropped as the base of the vehicle ruptured. Less than 30 seconds after it all began, the oxygen-starved fire was snuffed out, and choking black smoke billowed from the cockpit. All was silent. The crew was dead. Inside the spacecraft, those 30 seconds must have felt like a lifetime. The exhaustive investigation to follow determined that the likely source of the fire was an electrical arc from a short circuit in a control box located near Grissom on the left side of the vehicle. The electrical arc would have just been the latest example of a short circuit due to poor quality control or worksmanship with the wiring. We'll never know for sure because the fire blazed so fiercely at the suspected point of origin that all materials were destroyed. With fire always being the nightmare scenario, most of the materials inside the spacecraft would not sustain a flame under operational conditions. But the plugs-out test was not carried out under operational conditions. Rather than the 5 PSI of pure oxygen planned for use in space, the cabin was full of a lethal 16 PSI of oxygen. At those pressures, just about anything will burn. The fire spread up the left wall and then swept from the left to the right of the cabin, finding fresh combustible material in the ample amount of Velcro fasteners that had been freely distributed throughout the spacecraft interior. Velcro was known to be a fire hazard, but the astronauts loved the stuff and frequently informally asked for small amounts to be added here and there to facilitate zero-gravity operations. Many of these additions were not recorded, so the hazard of so much extra flammable material was not known. An additional fire hazard was known, but was overlooked as part of this seemingly harmless test. Stretched beneath the crew couches was a nylon net used to catch any small objects that might fall, lest they land on something delicate and important below. This highly flammable net would never have been allowed on an actual flight, but it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking this is just a test. As the fire eagerly tore through all the known and unknown combustible material in the cabin, the pressure inside rose. After mere seconds, the pressure proved too much for the capsule, and two-thirds of the circumference of the base of the vehicle ruptured, letting a rush of oxygen out. Fire in a small, confined space is obviously critically dangerous, but what doomed the crew was the sooty, noxious smoke that followed the rupture. Once the fire was out, the entire cabin filled with thick, greasy smoke. The crew soon lost consciousness and asphyxiated. The moon was not visible from the Kennedy Space Center that night in January 1967. At the time, it must have seemed further away than ever. The Apollo 1 accident sent shockwaves throughout the space program, the country, and the world. Up until this point, many people had seen NASA as shining heroes who could do no wrong. 
they were viewed as definitive proof that the American way of life could accomplish anything. Now, whether or not all of that is true is another story, but that was certainly the perception. Apollo 1 shattered that perception in one horrible instant. The mission was lost. The spacecraft was lost. The crew was lost. What followed was the inevitable investigations, finger-pointing, congressional investigations, corporate reshufflings, and contract renegotiations that you might expect from an incident like this. These are all well-documented elsewhere, and I'm not going to get into these topics. But what followed also was a newfound resolve throughout NASA. Lives had been sacrificed to this project now. Yes, astronauts had been killed before. Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, the prime crew of Gemini 9, were killed when their jet crashed into a building during a poor visibility landing at the McDonnell manufacturing plant. They died performing their duties as astronauts, but not in direct support of a space mission. This was different. One of the hopes of Apollo 1 was that it would be an energizing event, setting the stage for the sprint to the moon in the months to come. In a sense, though it came about in a completely different way, it was an energizing event. To fail now would be to dishonor the memories of these three brave men who had died in service to their country. And this is just me speculating, but I imagine it transformed the lunar landing goal from something that NASA was striving to do to something that NASA and everyone supporting it needed to do, down to their very core. To do anything less was unthinkable. It has been a tradition on this podcast to give a little epilogue whenever a member of the Mercury 7 leaves the stage. Scott Carpenter flew his lone mission on Aurora 7 before a motorcycle accident and a newfound interest in underwater research left him grounded. Gordon Cooper spent a day in space on Faith 7 before going on to command Gemini 5. He departed the space program in part because it became apparent he would likely not walk on the moon. Grissom's departure is clearly different. Virgil Gus Grissom flew the second of two suborbital Mercury flights, and then went on to command Gemini 3, the first manned Gemini flight. He was a consummate professional, calm, cool, collected, and with his emerging role as someone who tackled difficult firsts, first Gemini, first Apollo, he was a strong candidate to be the first human to set foot on the moon. Instead, Gemini 3 would prove to be Grissom's last flight, fading from our story far earlier than seems fair. He and his crew understood the risks and deemed the reward to be worthy. They paid the price for its ultimate success. Three days after the fire, legendary flight director Gene Kranz gathered the mission controllers in Houston together and delivered a speech. The speech is really incredible and exemplifies a lot of what is so significant about the Apollo program and how the men and women of that program responded to the accident. So bear with me, because I'm going to do that thing again where I read a quotation that's probably too long, but is just too good to resist. Kranz said, Spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. Somewhere, somehow, we screwed up. It could have been in design, build, or test. Whatever it was, we should have caught it. We were too gung-ho about the schedule, and we locked out all of the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble, and so were we, 
The simulators were not working. Mission control was behind in virtually every area, and the flight and test procedures changed daily. Nothing we did had any shelf life. Not one of us stood up and said, Damn it, stop! I don't know what Thompson's committee will find as the cause, but I know what I find. We are the cause. We were not ready. We did not do our job. We were rolling the dice, hoping that things would come together by launch day, when in our hearts, we knew that it would take a miracle. We were pushing the schedule and betting that the cape would slip before we did. From this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. We will never again compromise our responsibilities. Every time we walk into mission control, we will know what we stand for. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. We will never be found short in our knowledge and in our skills. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you will go to your office and the first thing you will do there is to write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never be erased. Each day when you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. Tough and competent was what NASA was going to need. Next time, we'll learn how they picked themselves up and got back to work. After a 20-month hiatus, and with only 14 months until the deadline, the crew of Apollo 7 flew the mission that Grissom, White, and Chaffee never would. The long-awaited Apollo shakedown mission was here, and a little case of the sniffles wasn't going to stop Mission Commander Wallace Shara from getting it done. Though, it may make him a little cranky. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.